0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. I come from a family of four kids, uh, and I'm number two out of the four, uh, second oldest. And there's a bit of an age gap between me and my younger siblings. Uh, so for a little while, it was just me and my older brother. And when I was around four or so, uh, my older brother started going to school. And so uh, often kind of our morning routine, my, my dad would be off at work. Uh, and so my mom, she'd get us breakfast, and we'd eat breakfast. And then the three of us, me, my mom, and my older brother, we, we would drive to his school, drop him off, and then we'd come back home. And it would just be me and my mom at home. Now, I, I've always been a very slow eater. Uh, I, I still am to this day. A, and the rule was, and maybe parents, maybe you guys have the same rule, the rule was that you cannot leave the table until all the food is gone. Now, I heard a right out there, I said, amen. <laughs> now, I, at the time, I usually had kicks for breakfast. And let's be honest, nobody likes kicks. If you like it, I'm sorry. Uh, If you work for Kicks, I'm sorry. Uh, But it's really no good. It has no flavor at all. Why I ate it, I don't know. But I ate it very slow. Uh, And the problem was that I never finished it in time for us to leave to drop my brother off at school. And maybe I ate it really slow, or I didn't finish it in time, maybe because I'm a slow eater, maybe because just of the lack of flavor and kicks. I don't know, but I never finished it. And so we dropped him off at school, and when we came home, there was my cereal waiting for me. And the rule was, you cannot leave the table until all the food is gone. The problem is, now it's all soggy and mushy and gross, but I still had to finish it. So... I said, all right, and this went on for a few days, and I was like, okay, I need to come up with a solution, and as a four-year-old, I think this is a pretty good solution. I said, I'm not gonna put any milk in it. That way, it doesn't get soggy, because I know I'm not gonna finish it. No more soggy cereal. The problem with that is, now I'm eating a dry, flavorless cereal that's now taking me even longer to finish. So, the next day, I said, I need a new solution. Still no milk, not doing the soggy thing. I decided I need to spice things up. Literally, I see the salt and pepper on the table, and I just started dumping it in. And the rule was, you cannot leave the table until all the food was gone. So yes, it was not good. Now, why am I telling you this? Because hopefully we can make the connection (laughs) That the Christians in Colossae, they were being told by false teachers that they were lacking in something, much like kicks, lacks in flavor. That their salvation was not complete, and they needed to add something to it, add something to and it was not good. But they said, your salvation is not complete, you need to add to it. And Paul understands this, and so he addresses it head on. And he's now diving deep into the spiritual dangers that are threatening this church. And this is really, I believe, the heart of the letter. Before this, we see a lot of doctrinal truth. And after this, we're gonna see a lot of practical implications. But this section is his polemic section, it is the argument of his letter. And he is addressing full on the false teachings that the church of Colossae are facing. We don't know the exact or specific heresy that's being dealt with, because Paul doesn't call it out. But we know aspects of it. We know it contains aspects of philosophy, of legalism, of mysticism and asceticism. And we know that it was prevalent enough for Paul to be concerned. And a common theme that we see through all four of these is that they seek to diminish. The sufficiency of Christ. And Paul is here to say Christ is completely sufficient. Now I admit, this is a a big passage and and difficult for me to tackle it all in one go. But this is the breakdown we have to finish the series in time that we need to. There's other big passages coming up. So we're going to fly somewhat high today and and maybe not able to dive deep into every single word or, or verse or concept But my hope is that we will be able to walk away with a good understanding of the sufficiency of Christ. So this morning we're going to look at why the false teaching is insufficient for salvation and in contrast why Christ is completely sufficient for salvation. So first, let's look at the insufficiency of false teaching. And we're going to start off by looking at the aspect of philosophy that they had in their false teaching. Verses 8 through 10. Look with me, if you will, at verse 8. He starts off by saying, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He starts off, see to it. Or as the King James Version says, beware. I think that's really very accurate because the grammar suggests an urgent warning that there is danger at hand. And historically, the church has constantly faced dangers of false teachers, and the church must continue today to beware. Jesus says in Matthew 7:15, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves." Peter says in 2 Peter 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Jesus says, beware. Peter says, beware. Paul says, beware. Do you think we should beware? Do you think that the attack and the temptations of false doctrine will be present? You bet they can, and you bet they are. And be foolish of us to ignore this warning. But instead, we must beware of the false teaching in our world today. And he warns them not to be taken captive. To be taken captive literally means to be kidnapped or or, or to be carried off as plunder, as spoils of war. There are false teachers that seek to take you away from God's truth, to capture and and kidnap you away from the truths of Scripture. Beware of becoming a victim of, of a spiritual predator who seeks to kidnap and carry you off as a spoil of war. Now, how would the false teachers take them captive? He says in verse 8, by philosophy and empty deceit. What is philosophy? Philosophy comes from two Greek words, phileo, to love, and sophia, which means wisdom, the love of wisdom. Now, to love and pursue wisdom is not necessarily bad. To pursue godly wisdom is an excellent thing. But to pursue worldly wisdom is destructive. Remember, these false teachers believed to have had a hidden knowledge, a, a superior knowledge, one outside of Jesus Christ. And as we looked at last week, Paul makes clear, there is no hidden spiritual knowledge necessary for salvation and sanctification outside of Jesus Christ. And this philosophy that Paul is warning them of, it was characterized, as he says, by empty deceit. And that term for empty deceit simply means that it's a fraud, that it's a trick. The purpose is for you to believe something that is not true. The word would often be used to refer to fish hooks and the deception of a fish hook. And it looks appetizing. This philosophy, it it, it sounds good. It seduces the mind. But in the end, it's dangerous. It doesn't give you what you expect. It turns out, being deceptive and harmful. If you could put your mind in a fish, and don't do it too often or for too long, but let's just say, like, if you could think like a fish, and you see that food, that bait hanging there, I'm sure the fish believes he's doing himself good. He needs food to live. He's thinking, Well, I need food, and there's food. This will be good for me. And in good faith, he takes a bite of the bait, believing it will do him some good, all the while not realizing the harm that it's gonna bring him. And the same is true for these Christians, I believe, who had good intent to grow in the Lord, but was deceived by the disguise and the deception of evil. But be careful. You may have good intent. You may have a good desire to grow in the Lord, but there is a lot of false teaching that seems good, but it's deceptive and harmful. And it is an empty deceit. There is no value. You are left with nothing but emptiness. The the danger of deception is that you don't realize that you're being deceived. Otherwise, you wouldn't be deceived, right? Right? This is why we must beware and be on guard and hold true to Scripture. And Paul says that this empty deceit, he says it's elementary. The, the word elemental principles literally means things in a row. It would be used of your ABCs, one, two, threes, do, re, me, baby, you and me, girl. That's what it's referring to. It's, it, 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 it's elementary. It's, just, it's your ABCs. And they claim that it's, it's advanced thinking. And Paul says, no, it's, it's rudimentary thinking. They claim it will advance you in Christ. And Paul says, no, it's actually apart from Christ. It's elementary principles of the world. It doesn't advance you to Christ. It, it, it would be a descent. It would be a regression from the mature, infinite, holy teachings of Scripture. And instead, it's falling back to the immature, childish thinking of the world. Not only that, but he says, it's not according to Christ. It's not from Christ. It's from the world. It doesn't push people towards Christ. It distracts away from them. It doesn't exalt Christ. It diminishes Christ. It's not according to Christ. It's empty. It's deceitful. And so in contrast to the empty deceit, we see there is fullness in Christ in verse 9 and 10. And we see that in two ways. In verse 9, we see that it is in Christ that the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. The nature of God was not just a light that shone through Jesus for a period of time. But Jesus is fully God forever and always. And secondly, what we see in verse 10 is that if you are in Christ, you've been filled In Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christian, you do not lack anything in Christ. You are complete in Him. As it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Beloved, you are complete in Christ, and there is nothing outside of Christ that can add to your salvation or your relationship with God we see this aspect of philosophy secondly we see an aspect of legalism we're going to jump to verses 16 and 17 to look at the aspect of legalism and legalism is man-centered it is based on human achievement Its main thrust is that spirituality is based on Christ plus human works These human works are often man-made rules that must be kept as a means to, to measure your spirituality. And Paul says, look at verse 16 with me, if you would. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These false teachers were saying that Christ is not enough, that you also must keep certain Jewish ceremonial laws. The food and drink likely referring to the Old Testament dietary laws, likely also adding more restrictions. The festivals would be referring to the Jewish celebrations, such as Passover or Pentecost, or Feast of Tabernacles, and others. And Paul is saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you for not keeping these things. These things do not earn you any right standing before God. These things are not meant to be pursued to gain salvation or favor with God. These things are merely a shadow, he says. Look at verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow has no substance. It simply points to the one who is the substance. In this case, Christ. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the law perfectly we are not to live according to the law in hopes to fulfill it or complete it to have a right standing with God but we are to rest in the grace of God and Christ's perfect righteousness that covers us and is our union with Christ and his righteousness that makes us right not our keeping of the law where we might fall to legalism today I think is by creating our own man-made rules and in turn, judging others when they don't follow them. Let us be careful not to judge others who live differently than us. Sometimes we observe others living their life, and we judge them not according to God's law, but to our law. Be careful not to take authority where Scripture does not take authority. Do not impose your own will as if it's God's will. Maybe they listen to different music. Maybe they dress differently. Maybe they have different hairstyles. And we make judgments. We must be ready to show grace and not make judgments based on our own man-made rules. An example. Let's say maybe you see someone walk into church and they're wearing a football jersey in the church on Sunday morning. And you say, why would he wear a football jersey to church? What is he thinking? That's not appropriate. Is that what God said? Why isn't that appropriate? that's not what you would do? Maybe he chose to wear this as worship to God. Maybe that's his most expensive piece of clothing, and he wanted to bring his Sunday best, and this is his Sunday best. And you were judging his heart. You were questioning his motives. When in reality, his heart was a heart of worship. Or maybe that wasn't his motive. But even so, was it wrong? We must be careful not to impose our own laws and act as if, if everyone followed these, then we'd be good. How can we be good? Through the finished work of Christ. And it's his righteousness that covers us completely. And in that, God is well pleased. Next, we see an aspect of mysticism. We see an aspect of mysticism in their false teaching. Verses 18 and 19. Let's look at verse 18 together. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Now what is being taught here? I believe, can be summed up as mysticism. What is mysticism? There are various degrees of mysticism, especially throughout history. But in short, mysticism can be defined as the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. It can refer to an altered state of consciousness. It can contain the worship of spiritual beings or spiritual realms. And it searches for truth through human intellect, through, through internal feelings, intuition, experience, visions. And the first thing we notice is that they encouraged the worship of angels because they were teaching that Jesus is just one of many. But that's not what the Bible says. There are not multiple ways to the Father. There are not higher or equal beings to Christ. Jesus rules supremely and uniquely. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one mediator p- between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We aren't to worship anything or anyone else other than God himself, even angels. In fact, John was rebuked for trying to worship an angel. It says in Revelation 19.10. Then I fell down at his feet, that's an angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Jesus said to Satan, it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. No one deserves our worship but God alone. That was not just their worship of angels, but they believed to have visions, superior insight into spiritual matters. And these visions were based on subjective truth and personal experience. And at at that point, who becomes the authority? Yourself. These false teachers would would claim to have visions. They, They would claim to have these superior experiences that brought them closer to God. And therefore, it gave them authority over those who haven't had these experiences or these visions. And therefore, you can't question their authority because They're the ones who experienced it. So how can you question their experience? You see the dangerous road that this leads us down. Our authority must never be the subjective or, or even our own experiences. Our authority must always rest in Jesus Christ and his word. This is our authority, always. The temptation is to shift from the objective to the subjective, to shift from Christ to our experience as it says in verse 19 we must hold fast to the head which is Christ are you seeking spiritual growth are you seeking to grow in Christ it doesn't come through the worship of angels or, or anyone else it doesn't come through visions it comes through Christ who is our head let's read verse 19 He's saying that they are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Spiritual growth comes from Christ. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Do not look for extra biblical or or superior growth outside of Jesus Christ. Abide in him. I do want to add in this section that some historians and scholars, they believe that at this time they were also getting into astrology. And sadly, that's still very prevalent today, even in the lives of some Christians. And so if you are into astrology, I I firmly but graciously say it is not from the Lord. To live by and seek guidance from your horoscope is not to live by Christ. You cannot claim that Christ has authority while at the same time seeking guidance and authority from the stars. It is the creator who has the authority, not the creation. It is Christ who is the head. It is Christ who is our authority. The last aspect that we see of this false teaching is that of asceticism. We see that in verses 20 through 23. Allow me to read 23 for us. It says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Asceticism is, is living a life of Rigorous self-denial, specifically with the attempt to gain righteousness or a right standing with God through this self-denial. These people would punish themselves and refrain from the pleasures of this world. Throughout history, we've seen this played out in many different ways. Some never bathing at all or ever washing their hands or feet. Some never changing their clothes. Well, they'll they'll wear the same vest every day, never cleaning it. Some shattering glass and putting it in their shoes so that as they walk, they're constantly in pain. Some abstaining from marriage or or other close relationships. Some taking uh, uh, hooks and sharp glass and whipping themselves on their back. And they do this in belief that it brings them closer to God and it elevates them spiritually. And Paul says, this brings you no value. Now, what might this look like in our life today? We might not be tempted to do the things I just listed. Maybe some you do, but probably not. But sometimes we might feel as if we need to punish ourselves when we sin against God. Bring ourselves back closer to him. Maybe we feel as if, man, I'm in deep sin, or I've really messed it up this time. And in some way, we feel that we need to punish ourselves so so, so that we can make things even. Beloved, rest in the grace of God. Remember that Christ has taken your punishment. You do not need to punish yourself. Really, in that moment, what, what you're saying is that Christ's atonement is not enough for you and that you need to add to the work of Christ by punishing yourself. You are taking away from the grace of God. Do not punish yourself, but run to the grace and the mercy of God. Now the question will probably be asked, should the Christian live a life of self-denial? Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. What about the missionaries who who have brought onto themselves a life of self-denial? Are they in the wrong? No. The difference is, I trust, is that they did not choose this life of self-denial to gain spirituality or to grow closer or to earn favor with God. They did so as a response to God's call of their life. They did not choose this life to earn God's love, but rather as a response of God's love. There is an aspect in which we are to deny ourselves, but in no ways does it earn or merit favor with God, nor should we reject the gracious gifts in which he has given to us. Instead, we'll be good stewards of them and respond in thanksgiving to So we see the insufficiency of this false teaching in these four aspects. Now we turn our attention to the sufficiency of Christ. And we're going to look at three ways in which we have complete sufficiency in Christ. The first is the cleansing, the complete cleansing we have in Christ, verses 11 and 12. And here we see two pictures in how the believer is cleansed in Christ. The first is that of the circumcision of the heart. Let me read verse 11 in him that's in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ in the old covenant physical circumcision that the cutting off of the flesh was an outward sign that you were part of the covenant under the new covenant in Christ circumcision is no longer of the flesh but it is of the heart The circumcision is not done by man. It's done by God. Paul says in verse 11, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The circumcision of the heart, the cutting of the heart is done by God. What is it? What does God do here? He cuts away the old self. Romans 6.6 says, our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The old self has been circumcised. It has been cut away, he says. The believer is no longer under the tyranny and the rule of sin. Now, does the Christian still struggle with sin? Does the Christian still sin? Yes. Because while believers have been set free from sin's dominion and reign over their life, they still reside within their sinful bodies. So why Paul says in Romans 7, 19 and 20, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Yes, we will continue to sin. But the point Paul is making is that the Christian has been cleansed through Christ. He has circumcised his heart and is no longer of the sinful flesh, but he's now of the spirit. There is no cleansing that we need outside of Jesus Christ. But he is sufficient to cleanse us. And having been cleansed, having your heart circumcised, not by human hands, but by God, there has to be a difference in how you live your life. Just as the Old Testament believers were identified as different through their physical circumcision, so you too, believer, ought to be identified as different through the spiritual circumcision of your heart. There ought to be outward, visible evidence of the inward spiritual circumcision of your heart. Does your life reflect that of a circumcised heart? Now, the second picture that we see of being cleansed is that of baptism. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul introduces the picture of baptism as being submerged into the water, being buried in Christ. It is a symbol of death to the old humanity, death to our old sinful flesh. That those in Christ have been buried with him and have put off the old self. And not only are we buried with Christ, but we we are also raised with Christ. We are raised into new life. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises us to new life in Christ. You have been raised in Christ, and you have new life in him, Christian. So live as a new creation in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen: if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Don't live as if you're still an old creation, but live as a new creation cleansed by Christ. Your old self has been buried in Christ and your new self has been raised with Christ. So live having been cleansed as a new creation in Christ. Baptism is indeed a beautiful picture of this, of the work that Christ has done in the believer's life, that they have been buried with Christ to their old life and that they have been raised with Christ into the new life. And baptism does not cause this to happen, but it is the declaration, the proclamation of what has already happened in the believer's life through the work of Jesus Christ. There's no cleansing outside of Jesus Christ. It's not through physical circumcision. It's not through physical baptism. It's not through any other works or ceremonial rites that we can accomplish. But true cleansing of the heart comes from Christ and Christ alone. And he is sufficient to do so. We see that we have complete cleansing in Christ. Next, we see we have complete forgiveness in Christ, verses 13 and 14. And I believe that this is really the heart of it. And I think the heart of this passage. And speaking of our forgiveness in Christ, Paul starts off by speaking of our natural human condition apart from Christ. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That those apart from Christ, those in their natural state and condition, we are spiritually dead. And to be spiritually dead means that we cannot respond to spiritual matters. Just like a physically dead person cannot respond to physical matters, a spiritually dead person, those in their natural condition, cannot respond to spiritual matters. And many of us, I know, have experienced the pain of death in this life. And we've seen death. We have buried our loved ones. Sadly, we have experienced death the finality of death, and we understand that, that there's nothing we can do to bring them back, right? I mean, it, 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 it would be foolishness. It'd be nonsense if we, if we went up to the dead body and we said, hey, I, you know, you just look a little dehydrated. Here, maybe take some more water. Or we said, you know, I think you just need some more medicine. Let me, let me give you more medicine. I think that will help. No, we know that they're dead. And we know that no amount of water or medication or anything can heal them. Because they don't need healing. They need life. But they can't have life. Because death is final and it's game over. And at that point, we're, we're moving on. They're gone, hopeless. Unless, unless there is one hope, the only hope a dead person has to coming to life is by a divine miracle from God. The only hope a physically dead person have of coming alive is if God provides a miracle and says, come alive, and they will indeed come alive. And some of you are like, are you crazy? Do you remember the story of Lazarus? It says in John 11, Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus and said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him lord by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days and jesus said to her did i not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of god john continues to write and he says that jesus cried out with a loud voice lazarus come out and the man who had died came out A divine miracle from God is our only hope of having new life. Anything outside of a miracle from God is nonsense. And the same is true for us spiritually. Why would it be any different for the physically dead person than the spiritually dead person? It would be foolishness for us to think that all the spiritually dead person needs is just take some spiritual medicine. They just need to have some spiritual water. That they just need to do more things. That if they could come to church enough times, that if if they could read their Bible enough times, or if they could give enough money to charity, then, then they'll be okay. They don't need spiritual healing. They need spiritual life. The call to a works-based salvation is nonsense. How can you call a dead person to good works? They're dead. How can you pursue a lifestyle of good works? You have no life. What you need is not to do more. You can't. You're dead. What you need is a divine miracle from God. We cannot do anything to resurrect our dead souls. We need a divine miracle from God. What we need is for God to breathe new life into us. We need God to say, rise, and we will rise. We don't have the power to call the dead to life but God does, and it is in him in whom we have new life, and so it says in verse 13, God made alive together with him. It is God who makes us alive together in Christ, not our pastors, not our parents, not our friends, nobody, not even ourselves can make us spiritually alive. But God can. And it is God who makes us alive together in Christ. It is Christ who gives us new life. How? As he says in verse 13, by forgiving us all of our trespasses. One of the sweetest truths in all of Scripture, I think, is the complete forgiveness we have in Christ. Each one of us have sinned against a holy and just God. But in Christ, we have complete forgiveness of our sin, all of our sin. And if you are in Christ, every single sin has been forgiven. All of your past sins, all of your present sins, all of your future sins, all of those sins in which you keep hidden, forgiven. You have sinned against God, and you will sin against God, but in Christ, all sins have been forgiven. Do not think that there are past sins that are too big to be forgiven. And do not think... There are future sins that might be so big that it pushes God away. But all have been forgiven in Christ. How? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You see, because of our sin, we're not only spiritually dead, but we're spiritually bankrupt. We all owe God a debt because of our sin against them. The wages of sin is death. It is the eternal wrath of God in which every single one of us deserve, you and me. But Paul says, he says, this stood against us with its legal demands. The the idea is that of a a, a certificate or, or a decree that condemns. And indeed, our sin condemns us. Our sin is not just, this is something I shouldn't have done but it is cosmic treason. It is against a holy and perfect God in which we have violated, and as a result, we deserve judgment and death. And Paul says, we've been forgiven of this, that God has canceled this debt, that those in Christ no longer owe God this debt, but we've been set free from it. Now wait a second, we ask. That seems unjust. Is he unjust? Does he simply just overlook our sin? No. As he says in verse 14, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin, our debt, was nailed to the cross of Christ. If you are in Christ, the debt that you owe was placed on the innocent shoulders of Christ. Not only that this innocent man, God in the flesh, not only was he whipped and his flesh torn to pieces, not only was he beaten and spat upon and mocked and crucified to a cross, not only that, but he received God's wrath on his shoulders. For you, beloved, we see justice and we see mercy at the cross. We see justice as every sin of yours was accounted for and paid in full by Jesus on the cross. Your sin and your debt has been dealt with. And we see mercy as God withholds that wrath that you deserve. Christian You will never receive a single drop of the wrath that you deserve because Christ took that cup of wrath on your behalf. Every last drop. God's wrath will be satisfied. It must be paid for. Where is your wrath stored up? Where is your wrath? It is either waiting for you for all of eternity or it was placed on Christ at Calvary. If you're not a Christian, please know that you are in debt. And you cannot get yourself out of debt by by being here or, or by living a good life or by knowing all the answers. One day, you will have to pay for your sin. and You will endure God's wrath forever. But there is hope. There is hope. In Jesus Christ, place your faith in him that he has paid it all. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And if you are in Christ, rest in the fact that all of your sins have been forgiven. Don't ever lose the sweetness of that truth. Remember the debt that you owe. And know that it is all gone. I think sometimes we, we minimize the debt that we owe. And we say, well, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I mean, I know I've sinned, but not that much compared to most. And in doing so, we minimize what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We minimize the grace and the mercy of God. Remember what the Lord has done for you. And let it create in you an enormous amount of gratitude and thanksgiving, and worship to him. We have complete forgiveness in Christ. And lastly, we see that we have complete victory in Christ. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Ephesians 6 warns us of a spiritual warfare that we face. And it tells us that we wrestle against the forces of evil. And there are times that it may feel like we're losing. And there are times it may feel like Satan has a stronghold. But we must remember that it is Christ who has the victory. And in our union with Christ, we share in this victory as well. The cross was not Christ being triumphed over. The cross was Christ's victory march of triumph. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame. And some of you live as if you're on the losing side, worried of what the final verdict might be. The victory has already been won in Christ. There is no victory for Satan. Satan is simply just waiting for the inevitable time of his disposal. It's like when I put the garbage out, the cans out on the street on Sunday night for the inevitable disposal of when they come pick it up Monday morning. I don't mind comparing Satan to garbage. It's inevitable. He will be disposed of. He is not the ruler of the lake of fire. He will be cast into the lake of fire. Maybe this will help. In illustration. A couple summer camps ago uh, for a youth group, a lot of the students were getting into chess. I don't know why. Chess is not fun, but they thought it was. So they're playing chess, and some of them, I guess, were getting pretty good. And, and probably the, the, the number one, they had like a bracket going. I know, really nerdy, but they, they, they had a bracket going. And like the number one was Micah Hauk, Matt Hauk's eldest son. And uh, he was just beating everyone. So naturally, all the students come up to me, Luke, Luke, you, you, you gotta play Micah, you gotta play Micah. And I'm like, okay. And I, I knew he, you know, he was probably pretty good. But he's a junior higher. So, how I many how good could he be? He was good. <laughs> and so we're playing. Um, and I, th- I think I'm doing pretty good. I think, okay, I'm putting up a good fight. And he, he pauses at one point. He just looks at the board, and he goes, not bad, but I have you in checkmate in four moves. And I'm like, excuse me? And, and he was right. And if I'm being honest, I knew he was right. And at that moment when he said that, I knew I had lost. And I knew there was nothing I could do to win. But I played out my four moves until my inevitable defeat. And in a way, this is how it is with Satan. At the cross, we see checkmate. At the empty tomb, we see a stamp of assurance of Christ's victory. Satan is simply just playing out his final moves, but he cannot alter the final verdict. He's lost. Game over. Christ has the victory. Beloved, rest assured in the victory we have in Christ. If you are in Christ, you share in his victory. Christ is sufficient. Completely sufficient. We do not need philosophy or legalism, mysticism or asceticism, or anything else. We need Christ. Christ is sufficient. And in him we are complete. If you are not in Christ know that you will not find completeness in anything or anyone outside of Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Come to Christ, who is our Savior. And if you are in Christ, I want to offer you three ways in which this might apply to you, and then we'll finish. The first is this. Do not fall to the false teaching of the world. Do not fall to the false teachings of the world. Beware. Take heed of the warning that we see all throughout Scripture. To think that you could never fall prey to the false teaching in the world is to be exactly where the enemy would want you. Be on guard. Hold firm to the truths of Scripture. The the danger of most false teaching is that there's a little bit of truth in it. And, And that's what reels you in. That's what makes it believable. Be discerning the truths of Scripture, and the deception of the world. Secondly, let the forgiveness of God create in you a forgiveness for others. See the great forgiveness that you have received and show that same forgiveness to others. As it says in Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? You have one servant who he owes his master an enormous amount of money. It would take a lifetime to pay his debts. But his master shows him mercy. He forgives him. He clears him of his debts completely. And so now he's feeling good. He's walking down the street. All right, I'm forgiven. And then his servant runs into him, who owed him just a little bit. And he starts choking him out, and he says, pay what you owe. And he throws him in prison. We are like that unforgiving servant when we do not forgive our brother or sister. We have been forgiven much. How can you not forgive your brother? No one has sinned against you greater than you have sinned against God. And yet God has forgiven you. And so you too forgive others as well. Especially if they are in Christ. If they are in Christ, God has forgiven them all of their sin. So who are we to say, well, God, that's great that you've forgiven them of that sin, but I'm not going to. I'm going to hold that against them. Do not play God. Let us forgive one another. And lastly, let the victory of Christ give you confidence that he is still on his throne today and that no one can thwart his plans. We do not know what tomorrow holds. And in the midst of suffering, we, we often don't know when our suffering will end. But this we know, that God is on his throne, that Christ is victorious, and that in him we have nothing to fear. For he loves you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He has forgiven you. He has seated you in the heavenlies and has given you the immeasurable riches of his grace. And there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So have hope, beloved. Christ is with you. He is sufficient. Fully and completely sufficient. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our lives. So let us worship him as our Savior, as our Christ, as our Lord. Let's pray.